0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon.
1: Would you open your Bibles to Romans 13? We'll be reading verses 8 to 10. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now this week we're in a transitional place in the book of Romans, but not cosmically, just locally, which is that we're moving we're in the public sector, but we're moving from uh, talking about the civil rulers to talking about our neighbors. The transition is a transition built upon the concept of debt. All right, We have a debt to the civil authority. We have a debt to our neighbor. All right, And at the center of this whole section is the statement that... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We know this is in the Old Testament. We know that Jesus repeated it. We know he's using it here now. And we know from this that this is a summary of the law, the second table of the law, the second half. And so when we read this, it's very important that we understand what is a neighbor. And we know it's important because Jesus one of his most famous parables is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And at the center of that parable is the fact that they were having a disagreement over who is my neighbor. So let me read the parable from Luke 10. A lawyer stood up. Lawyers here today, any? Okay, we've got a few. And a Jewish lawyer, although I'm not, all right, okay, I won't say anything. A lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, this Jewish lawyer, what is written in the law? How does it read? I love this. How does it read to you? You know, don't think deconstruction is uh, a new thing. <laughs> How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the word of your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor is yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, to the lawyer, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And then this statement, but wishing to justify himself, this lawyer, okay, he said to Jesus, you know. And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he, the lawyer, said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. We do seek to justify ourselves. Will you agree with me? And one of the ways we do this, following the path of this lawyer, we seek to delimit the boundaries of our obligations. Here the lawyer tried to do so by trying to limit the meaning of neighbor. Obviously he was not trying to expand but to contract his obligation to love. And who would he try to exclude from that command to love his neighbor as he loved himself? Well, no one more than than the absolutely despised Samaritans. Samaritans despise Jews, and Jews despise Samaritans. And so the idea that the Samaritan was his neighbor, but of course, it was rather that what? He was the Samaritan's neighbor. You see what Jesus does? He flips the whole thing upside down. And it's done in such a sophisticated way. It's like you miss it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you go on with it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point, you know. And then you have to stop and think about it. And you think, well, wait a second. He's making a choice between those three men as to which of them is the neighbor. But those three men are the three men that have the ability to help. But what they were talking about was the duty of being a neighbor and loving and helping. And so what Jesus does is he takes it and flips it upside down. So he describes the helper as the neighbor. And the helpee is not the neighbor. Now, that's not true. The, The only way it works is that the helpee is the neighbor, right? But we assume that. What we don't see is that Jesus is saying to him, you are in need. You're you're the man that was stripped and naked and, 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 and beat up on the road. And guess who your neighbor is? The hated Samaritan. Who's the neighbor? You know, the Levite, the rabbi, or the Samaritan? Well, I guess the Samaritan. In other words, what Jesus is pointing out to us is, that it is very difficult for us to love. It is very difficult for us to recognize our obligation to other people to love them. It's very threatening to come on some dude that's by the side of the road, naked, robbed, beaten, and recognize the responsibility we have to him. Right, we'd all agree that's difficult, okay. But Jesus flips it, you know, and he says now, Which of the three of them is the neighbor? It's like, no, 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 the man that was robbed, he's the neighbor and I'm supposed to help him, you know? No, 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 no. Two Jewish religious leaders and a filthy Samaritan. Which one's the neighbor? You see, it's actually even harder for us to accept help. (laughs) Now, do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus is pointing out the fact that if we have difficulty loving our neighbor and helping our neighbor, we have even more difficulty accepting help. And that the person who gives themselves to us as a neighbor is really a threat to us. That's why Jesus made it a Samaritan. Now, think about this for a second as as you listen to that story. Because one of the applications of it is In our victim culture, we are perpetually trying to remove the grease of love from our culture. We're trying to design a nation and a culture and a government where everything is a matter of duty because everything is a matter of justice and there is no love. And so remember a couple weeks ago I talked to you about the Americans for Disabilities Act, the ADA. I live to watch everything possible done through public largesse, and it was largesse, to keep anybody with a disability from ever having to depend on anyone else to love them and help them. And so every single corner of every city in the entire nation Had all the concrete busted out and replaced with ramps. Now, listen, I'm not against ramps. You know, I think, as concerning ramps, I think, Wayne, this is for you, I think we should (laughs) ramp them up. (laughs) Okay, where's David Canfield? You know, when you need him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Did you like that one, David? Was that a witticism or was that a pun? Yeah, yeah, it's a piticism. okay. <laughs> but, but do you guys realize, I was talking to some relatives recently that have been involved with the homeless, and, and one of my relatives wrote this op-ed. And, of course, you have to know the, the city it was in. It was in Eugene, Oregon. You know, not Corvallis, but Eugene, you know, where the enlightened people are, the stupid people go to the state university, Purdue it really is analogous to uh, Indiana University and Purdue, University of Oregon, and Oregon State University, actually. So anyhow, in his op-ed, he was talking about that caring for the homeless is a question of justice. Justice, justice. Well, of course, justice correlates to duty. It doesn't correlate to love. Do you understand this? And so what we're doing in our culture is we're using the public taxes and rhetoric to remove what? Indebtedness. You say, oh, no, 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 we have lots of indebtedness. And I say, yeah, you're talking about taxes, right? Unborn generations. Yeah, you're right. You're right. We have lots. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the, in, the debt of love because that debt, we will not pay. We will not allow anybody to be indebted to anybody else for love. Do you realize this? That's the nature of abortion. That's the nature of feminism. We won't have the weak. We won't have victims. We won't have unwanted children. We won't have love. And so you think about what people mean when they speak of love today? Do you know that when I left the PCUSA, I left it at the time with my my congregations over a report of a study committee. And do you know what the study committee, I don't know if you know this, Wayne, but the study committee was referred to as the, quote, justice love study committee. And so what was the love? Well, the love was justice. What was the justice? The justice was telling older couples who would lose some of their social security if they got married, that they could live together without benefit of marriage. In the church, Christians commending that, the Presbyterian church. Justice love was commending sodomy and lesbianism. Justice love was commending fornication. Do you see this? And this is our culture today. We will not be helped by a Samaritan. (laughs) We will not be in debt to a Samaritan. Do you see this? We will remove every curb and they will be ramps. We We will take public taxes and we'll do everything we can to protect each man's pride and dignity. And so... And and the ironic thing about this is that they do this all under the rubric of compassion and love. And then they'll say it's a duty, and you get facial tics. Well, which is it? Is it a duty, or is it compassion? Well, it's both. Justice, love. No, 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 you just killed love. Think about this, guys. Think about it. And so we seek to justify ourselves and we follow the path of the lawyer in delimiting the boundaries of our obligations. Scrupulously we delimit them. And of course there's nobody that we want to delimit our obligations to more than somebody we despise. And there's nobody more despised at that time than the Jews despise the Samaritans. Samaritans despise the Jews. And so, to begin, we must not approach these commands in Romans by trying to justify ourselves, showing that we love those who are in church with us, those who live next to us, those in Bloomington, those in Monroe County, those who are natural-born citizens of the United States of America, and maybe our cousins across the pine in the United Kingdom, but certainly not the Germans. I mean... Do you remember the war? So after the congregational meeting, Jurgen and I were talking. And then yesterday we were talking again, and he said to me, you, "He said, "You know that uh, you know something funny." I said, "What?" He said, "Not one person showed up at the coffee. Not one." And so Jürgen and I were both laughing and laughing. I said, well, J- Jürgen, that's because you went all Nazi on them. You, know? <laughs> you told them, you told them th- that they better not. And it's, it's an indication of, in Christ, there being neither American nor German. And we both laughed. We both thought it was funny. <laughs> you know. But you understand why I'm saying this. My grandfather was uh, an engineer for Republic Steel in Massillon, Ohio. He would not allow into his home anything that said made in Japan. And so this is the Samaritans. We go through our lives delimiting who our neighbor is. And we reduce everything to transactions that can be carefully stipulated. You owe me, I owe you. And we want the stipulations to be objective, which means numerical. Are you with me? Oh, nothing to anyone. This statement comes directly on the heels of what? it comes directly on the heels of this statement. It's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake, for because of this. So he's talking about the civil authorities. He says, because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing. Then he says this, render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. In other words, what he's doing is he's telling us in the name of God that we have a debt. And the debt is to the civil ruler. And the debt we owe the civil ruler is taxes. And it's customs, it's your car registration fee. And it's honor and respect. These are debts because he says here, render to all what is due them. It's a debt. Now, then he moves directly into neighbors and he says that the fulfillment of the law is to love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? You're all with me. Now, have you ever thought about the fact that this is pointing back to the civil authority and it's a command, what? We're to love the civil authority. We're to love him. Now, at this point, you're thinking, ah, he's going to go all COVID on us, right? Five centuries ago, John Calvin wrote on the text we're at today and pointed back to those previous verses. And this is what he said. He says, the Apostle Paul is saying to us, quote, so this is Calvin summing up the Apostle Paul, when I request you to obey rulers, I require only what all believers ought to perform by the law of love. Wasn't no COVID then. And then he says, to introduce anarchy, therefore, now what is anarchy today? Well, reform people don't say anarchy we give it a nicer name, a euphemism, and the euphemism is libertarianism. I'm, 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 I'm really being very serious about that. That's what anarchy is. And he says, to introduce anarchy, therefore, is to violate charity. For the immediate consequence of anarchy is the disturbance of the whole state. Then he goes on and he says, since magistrates are the guardians of peace and equity, those who desire that every individual should preserve his rights and that all men may live free from injury must defend to the utmost of their power, the order of the magistrates. And then he adds this. He says, it is the enemies of government who reveal their desire to do harm. And I'm going to remind you, this is in the time of the Emperor Nero. Oppressive taxes, unfair civil magistrates, just like today. And that's when he wrote this. Five centuries ago. And so what Calvin is saying is the transition is the duty to love the magistrates by giving them the honor, the respect, the taxes, the customs, the car registration fees. And now when it comes to your neighbor, and your neighbor is the despised Samaritan because he takes care of you. Okay? Therefore, it is necessary. So, in other words... He transitions to our broader obligations to all men, speaking them as our neighbor. And he speaks of what we owe. And he tells us we are to have no debt to anyone other than what? The debt to love. And that debt is to everyone and always because it can never be paid off. (laughs) You with me? It's a lifelong debt we owe everyone, this debt of love. Now, immediately, I'm aware of the cult of David Ramsey. All right? A lot of unbelievers and believers live their lives according to Dave Ramsey. And so... We ask the question, does this initial command, owe no man anything, preclude the Christian from borrowing or loaning their car, house, or lawnmower? And the answer is no, of course not. This is not a command against borrowing or loaning. And you say, I shouldn't include loaning, only borrowing, right? A good Dave Ramsey disciple, right? But then I say, why not? Is loaning not participating in the borrower's sin? In other words, if it's a sin to borrow, it's also a sin to loan. Clearly, there are times when debt is love. Take, for instance, the good Samaritan. He left the injured man who had been robbed in the care of the innkeeper, telling the innkeeper that he would be in his debt for his care. And that in time, he would return and pay his debt to the innkeeper for doing so. Sorry. You're driving me bonkers. So if Jesus is telling this story and commending the Samaritan for being a neighbor, obviously, are you with me, what the Samaritan did was A-OK. And what he did was he borrowed from the innkeeper. Yeah, he gave him some money, but he then said, and whatever else I owe you, I will pay. So we see that this debt he took out with the innkeeper was a payment of the debt of love. (laughs) Are you with me? He owed both the injured man who had been robbed and the innkeeper who would bear the expense of caring for him. In other words, in such a case, borrowing is love. He borrowed from the innkeeper, and the debt he owed the innkeeper himself was the debt to pay off his loan, to pay off his debt when he returned that way. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, borrowing and lending are commended. And so the application of this command, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, is fulfilled by the borrowing and paying off what has been borrowed later and in full. We see that loaning cars, homes, lawnmowers, baking soda, eggs, and money are often the fulfilling of the command to to owe no man anything but love. which is to say loaning is often love just as borrowing is often love. You see, the point of this is not to pat, (laughs) you ready? Not to pat the self-righteous no debt ever for anything but your home mortgage guy on the back for accruing so much money for himself by condemning debt. The man who has no love for his neighbor is always clear on borrowing and loaning, and he's always again it but this is his refusing to pay his real debt which is the debt of love now come on people it's not complicated and he has that debt to all his neighbors to every single one of them including the samaritan Stinginess, miserliness, self-aggrandizement, and self-justification are not love. They are the opposite of love, which, depending on what you want to say, it's either indifference or hatred. The godly man loves by taking on debt, principle among which is that debt of love. Owe nothing to anyone. Except, I mean, it's like perfect Jewish argument. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's like in, in the book of Philemon, you know, where he says, I, I'm not even going to mention the fact that you owe me your very life. You know, that's like, <laughs> to me, the supreme Jewish, <laughs> you know, it's like I had a Jewish uh, Sunday school teacher in junior high school, and he was a voiceover for AT&T. You heard him all over the country on ads. He got his start at WGN doing radio theater, you know, a very sophisticated man. Russ Reed was his name. He was on the board of Jews for Jesus. And uh, we invited him up to our church in Wisconsin once for a Sunday evening service where, you know what he did? He recited the book of Philemon from memory. And it was utterly fascinating because he inflected the text as a Jew would. And you have no idea how interesting the Apostle Paul is when a Jew reads him. Seriously. <laughs> you know, that's a gift you can give the church, you know. I mean, it's such an endearing trait of Jews. Because, man, do they get under your skin in a heartbeat. You know, it takes a German 10 years to get under your skin. But I mean, a a Jew can get under your skin in a millisecond, you know. And so you look at him, listen to what he just said. This is Jewish. Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. I mean, guys, it's hopeless. You start out thinking, yeah, no debt, you know, and then accept to love one another. Do you see the humor? It's like we thought we were going to get off easy, and then he says, accept to love one another, and we realize our goose is cooked. It's hopeless. We're done for. We're done for. (laughs) You know? You know what I'm saying? We don't want to love because we want to delimit our obligations, and that means we delimit love. Now, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Is this really who Jesus is? Is this who Jesus is? Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. Is this the love of Jesus? Is this the love of the Father who sent his beloved only Son here? Here. And I don't know about you, but I know about me. And it's utterly disgusting to think of precious, precious Lord Jesus Christ taking my sin upon him. Do you remember what it says about Jesus outside of Lazarus' grave? Do you remember what they said? Remember it? You remember what they said? They said, see how he loved him. Remember Jesus with the little babies? Remember his anger against the disciples being dismissing towards these precious little ones? You remember him on the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Oh, the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus. And what the Bible says is that we, what? We love, why? Because he first loved us. (laughs) Oh, so I was frustrated during the offertory that they were playing the hymn I wanted to sing. So Phil, would you come up and lead us, please? We're not done. I'm going to be talking at you again, but we're going to stop and sing.
0: Let's stand and sing. what, What wondrous love is this? What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul. What wondrous love is this, O my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss To bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul. To bear the dreadful curse for my soul. When I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down, When I was sinking down, sinking down. When I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul, for my soul. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. To God and to the Lamb I will sing, I will sing. To God and to the Lamb I will sing. To God and to the Lamb, who is the great I Am. While millions join the theme, I will sing, I will sing. While millions join the theme, I will sing. And when from death I'm free, I'll sing on, I'll sing on. And when from death I'm free, I'll sing on. And when from death I'm free, I'll sing his love for me. And through eternity, I'll sing on, I'll sing on. And through eternity, I'll sing on. Please be seated.
1: And so with Jesus as our lover, as the lover of our soul, we are free to compete, to keep up with the Joneses. We're free from a desire to delimit our love, seeing how great a love we have received from God, that we have become adopted sons of God. Now, I want to open up the nature of this debt of love a little bit so that we have an idea what it involves. And I want to, partic- I want to, I want to speak and address particularly something that I, I don't think we often remember. In Ephesians 4.28, it says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Now, he is to work. He's not to steal anymore. And so I have always thought of this as just simply being an exhortation to the guy that, you know, uses a gun and robs a bank, or the guy that, you know, pilfers stuff from work, or the guy that counts cards, you know. In other words, the, the grossly evil Forms of stealing there are, right? I have always thought that that's all it means and that we should just leave it there. But then we had a guy in this church once who was single and he didn't require much money at all to live. But he was brilliant. And after a number of years, the elders and pastors were talking and they said, wait a second, wait a second. How much are you working? We found out he was working about eight hours a week. And he was so good that he was able to provide for himself at eight hours a week. But then you calculate, and you think, do you know how helpful he could be to the poor people of this church? So I was talking to him one day, and he was explaining that he really didn't need to work much at all. And there were some other things contributing to it that I won't go into. Okay, But, all of a sudden, I realized that this man was still stealing because he has a debt of love and he's able to work and that work is to help the people in need and so if you don't help the people in need and you're under the command of God that you have an obligation to love and you don't help them you are a thief And so we did something that was pretty angular. And I'm sure if anybody wants to write us up on the internet, like on that Julie Rolls-Royce or whatever that lady's name is, on her website, you know, or, or the uh, the uh, warts and pimples site, whatever that thing is, the watch the pimples or watch the warts or something like that a warpburg watch you know all these sites of women who just spend their life trashing authority and they have justification i mean they come up with good trash you know it's exciting we'll be written up for this which is that the elders got together and they met with this man and they told him you were to take a job it's to be full time and if you quit that job, within the first six months, we'll place you under formal discipline. <laughs> what do you think of that, Richard? <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty bodacious, right? Did you ever do that down in Ulitic? No, I never did that. You were too busy working. <laughs> <You know. laughs> Now listen, people, think about this. Now, I will tell you that this man is one of the sweetest men I've ever known. Generous. Nobody had ever put it to him that his work ethic was theft, or the lack thereof. And do you know that that man, for years after that, held down one job? My point in telling this story is that there are many ways that we can steal from other people. And if we're trying to delimit our obligations of love to our neighbors, there are a host of ways of doing it. We can make it a principle we don't believe in debt. We can make it a principle we don't believe in loaning. We can make it a principle that, you know, I. I'm quite content working eight hours a week. We can make it a principle, well, you know, these sojourners in our midst are here illegally. I'm not gonna stop this. So you have six months, five, four now, who knows. I'm gonna keep hitting this. It just infuriates me how conservative Americans who are Christians refuse to recognize the obligation of love they have to people here who come from poor countries. Well, yikes. I was hoping to stand alone on this one. <laughs> I hope you don't get in trouble afterwards, whoever said this. Oh, aren't you Hispanic? <laughs> it's just him doing good to his neighbor. Don't you come from down near the border? Where? Houston. Houston? Oh, my goodness. All right. You know, listen, have you been loved by God? Have you been loved by God? Can we please stop with this business of trying to fence off our obligations? And can we be as generous as God has made us. You think about the Bible telling us that God sends his, his reign on the just and the unjust. I've been reading the first, the second hundreds. I've been reading in Psalm 100 to 110. And there's a psalm in there. I don't remember which one it is. But the entire psalm until like the last verse, which goes all uh, <laughs> uh, yikes on you. But up until that, the whole thing is a celebration of the fruitfulness of the earth that God sends down. The entire psalm, it just talks about God doing the grass for the animals and the rain and, and, and just the, 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 what would the word be? I'm bad at words now, but the beneficence, the fecundity, the fertility, the fruitfulness, the, you know, it's just like mind-boggling, you know? And this is the world God has given us, not to mention the blood of his precious son. And can we not fulfill our debt of love? Are we so tight that we can't love unless we're invulnerable? (laughs) You know, right? You understand what I'm saying? It's like, well... I'll sidle up to you if you'll sidle up to me. You know? Do we bear any resemblance to Jesus? I mean, honestly, in the way we live our lives, he took the little ones in his arms and he blessed them. And that's not the only thing he did. He got angry and rebuked the disciples. But, but that's not the gentle and lowly part. Listen, what this text says is that the God of Mount Sinai, are you with me, who if you touch the mountain, what? You died. That when he inscribed the tablets of stone with his law, both sides of the tablet said, love. Love. The first side of the tablet said, love your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second tablet said, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the entire law. And that was the God who was on Mount Sinai. And if you touched it, you died. You with me? Now, you know what I'm going to say to you. Dispensationalism, sorry, I don't know exactly who here is dispensationalist. It's false doctrine. Because what dispensationalism teaches you is that the God of the Old Testament was rough and tumble and harsh and angry, and the God of the New Testament is a God of gentleness and lowliness. And it's a It's a lie. The God who inscribed both tablets of the law is a God of love. And you sum up the law by saying, Love God, love your neighbor. He's a God of love. And you touch his mountain, you'll die. And do we really have problems putting those two together? I mean, what is wrong with our reasoning ability? It's just ludicrous. So I'm gonna tell you a story. When I was in high school, I worked packing books at Tyndale House. Tyndale House was the company of my girlfriend's father. And that was Ken Taylor. Living by what was just being released. So I'd hitchhike into Wheaton, 11 miles, and I'd work there, and then I'd hitchhike home. And when I was at work, I packed books. And then I figured out the postage and, you know, put it all together and put it in a gurney, okay? And do you know what books I packed? Dispensationalist books. Salem Curbin and Tim LaHaye. I mean Tim LaHaye flew out of that shipping room. Now, do you know the name Tim LaHaye? Tim LaHaye is like the quintessential dispensationalist. All right, Dad made a lot of money off him. About 25 years later, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, who was the editor of Moody Monthly, which Moody is a dispensationalist school, the two of them got together and and they decided that they were going to write a book. And so they wrote a book called Left Behind. And man, oh my goodness, did that thing fly off the shelves. I had been going to bookstores for years, used bookstores, new bookstores, and I lived on the east side of town at the time, and I'd go to Barnes & Noble and Borders, and I saw something I'd never seen before. They always used to take Christian books and hide them in the back. And all of a sudden, I'd walk in, and it was this huge book rack filled with left behind, and I'm going, whoa, you know? It was mind-boggling. Well, they realized that they had a goose that laid golden eggs. And so they began laying eggs. Now, personally, I wouldn't call them eggs, but they laid something. (laughs) And so they kept writing these books, and these books kept selling like hot cakes. Okay? And before it was over... The market capitalization of Tim and Jerry and their books reached, do any of you know? A billion dollars. A billion. Things were sitting pretty for evangelicals. You know? All the dispensational well, dispensationalism has owned the evangelical world for the latter part of the twentieth century dispensational in campus crusade, it's Dallas Theological Seminary, it's Moody, it's, it really has owned the theology of evangelicalism. And do you know what left behind taught? I mean, the basic plot was, don't worry, Christians are not going to suffer in the tribulation. I mean, that's what it was. And now you've got gentle and lowly And guess what? Jesus is just itching for you to come to him because he's so gentle and lowly. And you all love it. You buy that book you bought Left Behind, you know? It's like, oh, this is so nice, it makes me feel so good. So, here's the rest of the story. So, after uh, Left Behind owned the nation in sales, we are at a family reunion, and I have a sister-in-law who is in Washington, D.C. She's alternative to the Max. I mean, trust me. And she's very sophisticated, you know. She spent her life doing, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, Freelance editing for all the big uh, agencies there. And she and her husband go over to the Mediterranean on their sailboat for months at a time. And she's alternative. And so, and I love her, and I love her husband. And um, so we're at a family reunion. And she looks at dad, my father-in-law, Ken Taylor, and she says to him, Dad, she says, what do you think of this Left Behind series? Now remember, hundreds, and I mean, just selling off like hotcakes. And Dad looks at her in front of the family and he says, uh, I, I, haven't, I haven't read it. He had a speech problem. And what he said was, I haven't read it. Well, it kind of shocked all of us in the family. (laughs) You know, it's like she's asking dad and we're all uptight because she is not walking, you know, and here's dad and and the money's pouring in, you know, Niagara Falls, you know, and she asked him, he says, I haven't read it. And everybody's quiet for a second. then she looks at him and she says, why not? And he said this. He said, I don't agree with the theology. Never forget it. People. The God of Mount Sinai. And the God who hung on the cross, and the God who sent his only beloved Son to hang on the cross. They're the same God. The Old Testament people of God were not saved by being obedient, they were saved by Jesus Christ's blood. They look forward to him on the cross. He was their Messiah. It's all through the Old Testament. And the God of the epistles is not a different God than the God written in the Gospels. God never changes. And God's name is jealous. And God is love. Do you you see? Do not make idols. Because they're impotent. Do not lie to yourself that God in the New Testament is love. The love of Jesus whipped the temple. And God in the Old Testament cared so carefully for Joseph, so tenderly. And what about Sarah? And what about Ruth and Naomi? I mean, the idea that we have a different God in the Old Testament than the New Testament, which is absolutely central to dispensationalism, has corrupted the church so that today, in the church, there is no fear of God. The church today has no fear of God. I hope you all realize this. But we think that we have grace and love. But can you imagine a more graceless church than we have today? You know, a number of years ago, we had a man confess an awful sin to this congregation. in Sunday morning worship. And then he asked to be forgiven. And I I stood there and watched as person after person came to the front, crying. And forgiving him. You know what I thought at that time? I thought, you know, I have never seen such grace from God. Everybody's crying because everybody knew how much they had been forgiven by God. It was, I've never seen such love. Dispensationalism is a lie. God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament are equally compassionate, equally gentle, equally lowly, and equally wrathful against the ungodly. And you don't need to hear about one and not the other. You need to love who God is, not who you would like him to be. Because ultimately, a God is who plays favorites and never disciplines his children is a God who does not love us. Okay? Now I'm going to end with this. You know he goes through the commandments and I just want to say a few things about the commandments before we conclude. He goes through and he says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law for this and then he lists them. He says, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Then he adds, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbors yourself. So I want to say just a couple things about how it is that these commandments to not commit adultery, to not murder, to not steal, and to not covet are love. All right. I want to start with adultery. The major manifestation of adultery in the life of the church today is pornography. Well over a third of it is consumed by women. It's not a male-only sin. But it is predominantly male. And even if churches are not going to be against any other sexual sin, every church, no matter how weak it is, will be against pornography, and the reason is that women are destroyed when they find their husband looking at naked flesh. And evangelicals are nothing if they aren't sensitive to women. And so every pastor will will preach against pornography, and what do they typically say? What they typically say is that you should not look at it, right? And so you renew your commitment. This was a lot of what Promise Keepers was, we're not going to look at it. But after years of dealing with men and with my own heart, I've realized that the way to to not look at pornography is what? It's love. Here's an idea. It's love. If you'll cultivate love for your wife, are you ready for this? And your daughters. You realize what I'm saying? In other words, if you realize that you are destroying women when you look at that stuff, and I'm sorry, I would like to use a four-letter word, but I won't. Because the editor would delete it. And I hope by saying this, I've I've been able to help you to see that the command, don't commit adultery, is a command to Love. It's love. When you love your wife, do you really want to do that to her? You know? Now, you women are, uh uh-oh, uh-oh. Okay, you women, right? You all right? We all right? A man's going to tell a woman what to do. (laughs) Okay, listen, you women. Don't be immodest in your dress. You say, why not? I say, here's an idea. Do you really want to cause your next door neighbor to divorce his wife because his wife doesn't have the breasts you have? (laughs) Did I just say that? I mean, we can see it all the time, (laughs) but I'm not supposed to say it. You realize when you're immodest, you are destroying another man's marriage and his children. Love your neighbor. Don't flaunt what God has given you that he hasn't given other women. For heaven's sakes. Now, is that logical, Dan Cogman? Am I being logical according to a PhD and a Doctor of jurisprudence? Did that meet the demands of reason and logic? Okay. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't going off half-cocked, you know? The second one is what? The second one is, you shall not murder. Are you using hormonal birth control? Are you? We've been working on a paper. It's at 43,000 words so far. A lot of people in this church have contributed to it. It's very clear all the pharmaceutical firms say that hormonal methods of birth control kill unborn children. But they won't say kill unborn children because they deny it's a child until it's implanted on the womb. But that's never been the definition of life. Life has always been defined as starting at conception. Fertilization. So we think as Christians that we're Copacetic, you know, that we, we don't abort. All we mean by that is that we don't go down to Plant and Parenthood and have the insides of ourselves scraped out. And then we go ahead and do what we want with chemicals. Here's an idea that little one that God has placed in a woman's womb is your neighbor. Your neighbor. And you have an obligation to love your neighbor. And if you love your neighbor, you won't kill him. Uh, Dan, again, I make my appeal to you. Is that logical? Is that reasonable? Have I violated the, 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 the... What do you say? Okay. He's got a law degree and a Ph.D., These things are complicated. You should read Peter Singer. You know, he's this philosopher at Princeton, Presbyterian Princeton. And so this last week, I've been spending time reading him, and he goes on and on about how that a a, a decent dog is a superior uh, companion to a person than a defective child. And that if you refuse to kill the child that's defective and use animals and eat them that you are, and the word is speciest. The word is not specious. And so writing this paper, I wanted to write that this is a stupid, godless, wicked man but I knew that wouldn't get past the editors. But what does the Bible say? It says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so here, a philosopher at Princeton, his book, Practical Ethics, has been for sale for what? 10, 15 years, right? 10, eight, five? Oh, 25 years? Oh my goodness. And do you know, it's, it's something like 180 or 140,000, 140,000 on the Amazon bestseller list. 25 years after it's been published. And let me tell you, that's, that's a good-selling book. And it's an academic book. And this is who we are today. We buy Peter Singer. I've heard all his arguments in the church, people defending their veganism, people defending their preciousness about pets. I drove by the vet today out on 45. I remember an article in the New Yorker years ago where they said it's impossible to get anybody to care for the animals on farms anymore because everybody in the vet schools are number one, women, and number two, they want a relationship with the animals. And that's what a vet is today. It's all these people who are unbelievably precious about animals while they kill their babies. And you say, oh, no, no, no. That's a non sequitur. It's not, no, no, no. I say, yes, 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 yes. The world today makes a huge show of having compassion and mercy for non sentient creatures. And it's a sham you say, well, yeah, but what about Nathan telling the story about the man who had his little lamb, you know, and he loved him like a daughter. Remember that? I say, yeah, that's true. I'm not saying you shouldn't love your dog. What I am saying is that in our culture today, veganism and vegetarianism and the establish of personhood and the right to sue in courts of redwood trees and the green and the sustainability, okay? Are you all with me? All this stuff is this huge show of compassion by people who abort their children and are in favor of aborting children. And so people, Houston, we have a problem, don't take your eye off the ball. Jesus shows us what love is. You may be an environmentalist. I mean, I commended Dan. Wait, what are you doing? You're here again. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's why everybody's here. What? What's happening? You'll find out. Oh, I don't blame you. I'm getting long in the tooth. So, Dan works and is paid by the federal government to sue corporations. And I have been so proud of him for so long, why? Well, because Dan is an agent of the federal government in punishing those who have no love. You say, well, what do you mean no love? I say, what does it do when we trash the waterways? Around Gary, Indiana, with toxic chemicals that will last forever. Is this not an assault upon our unborn children? I'm not against environmentalism, I'm not against sustainability. Don't take your eye off the ball. What has gone on the last 50 years is the liberals have redefined morality so that it consists of a bunch of small laws because they have destroyed the large laws of God. And so they're all busy trying to show they're moral people and religious, and they have an infinity of small laws that they're making everybody observe. And it gives them some props as morally superior people. And you, as Christians, may not do that. You may not trade on the execrable morality of the elite. You may not cop a posture as being sympathetic to them. There is no sympathy, and we know that because of the billions of unborn children who have been slaughtered. All right? And so, the law of love says you shall not murder, then you shall not steal. Now, how do we steal? Well, I gave one example of a guy that won't work because he can live off eight hours a week. But here's another example. Why is it that in my lifetime, I have watched our states and our nation begin to fund the most basic aspects of government by selling lottery tickets To the poor. It's disgusting. You go into a mini-mart, and what do you do? You stand there waiting forever for all the poorest of the poor to buy lottery tickets. And you say, well, that's their decision. I say, no, it's you deceiving them through the ads of the lottery system. And so the rich are entirely happy to have the poor pay for their schooling, their education, their parks, their libraries, and it's theft. And you say, oh, well, now you're going all paternalistic on it. I say, no, I'm not. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Okay, I got to end. All right. And then you shall not covet, one of the commentators makes the point that um, that when we, when we covet, we then take out loans that we can't pay. You know, because we want a nice car, we want a nice house, we want a nice vacation. And so we go in debt because of envy. And I'm happy to make that point on the high holy day. Of the advertisement industry. <laughs> like, how many of us watch for the game and how many of us watch for the commercials? Listen, the entire law is summed up with us loving God and with us loving our neighbor. And I had never noticed until preparing to preach that in James, it says this. (laughs) I'd never noticed this before, James 2.10. It says, for whoever keeps the whole law. No, I'm sorry, that's not the one. Uh, Just a second. It's James 2.8. It says, if however you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now does anybody here, nobody in the first service, including Tim Wagner, knew what the last words are? I'll read it again. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love... No, (laughs) I'm getting senile. I should retire. (laughs) If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All right. Come on, anybody know? I just love this. You know what Max says? What Max says is, well done you. You've all heard him say that. I just love it. It's one of my favorite phrases. If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. I just love that. You're doing well. All right, let's sing.